Good morning and welcome this morning. That thing's, that thing's working well. Um, sorry we don't have the, um, the warning up here and the countdown for everybody to be prepared to see me walk up here, but good morning and welcome this morning. We are having technical difficulties, so we will not have any pretty pictures or slideshows or anything like that this morning. I'm sorry. I, it's, we're just going to have to do it the old school way, I suppose, today. So, so we're, yeah, again, welcome this morning. Um, a few announcements uh, to get us started. Uh, Bible Witness Camp's Praise Banquet is September 16th at 3 p.m. They will present the musical Under God C in 3D. Um, if anyone would like to go, um, you can call the number in the bulletin and reserve a spot. If anyone has a prayer request for one call now, please contact Pam Risto, Doug Bauer, or Abby Faber. They all have the ability to upload um, prayer requests onto that, um, the message board that we have. Um, and please consider updating the prayer request so our church family knows how to pray. If anyone would like to be added to the one call now, please contact one of the volunteers. Okay, um, please sign up for Sunday hospitality for the visiting pastors. Um, if you're unaware of what that is, I'm not completely sure either. But it, what it is is when we have a guest speaker come in, we're asking that people will volunteer to host them for a meal um, after, and there may be other times where some of them may need a place to stay um, the evening before. We're not sure how all of that looks, but please be open to anything that may help these, these great men come and minister to us. So if you would like to do that, um, please, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table under the window. I also have a note here from the family of Courtney Davis. Dear Christian Bible Church family, Thank you for the beautiful flowers, and most of all, thank you for the many prayers over the last 18 months. They were and still are very much appreciated. Sincerely, the family of Courtney Davis. And we also want to continue to pray for Florence and also um, Robin Lober's daughter and granddaughter Santana and Analia. Uh, she had a fire in her home, and she's displaced right now, so let's please be in prayer for them as they go through that. Are there any other announcements or prayer requests that aren't in the bulletin? Oh, right. Sorry, Doug, I failed. Uh, the love offering box in the back, we had it out for our Ghana mission project, but for the next couple weeks, we're gonna have it up there to for uh, giving to Santana and Analia as they're in need of some help in this time. So please be aware that uh, that's back there for that purpose. But if you are to write a check and put in the memo what it is for, it will get to the right place. So please, if you're giving to a specific thing, make sure that you put it in the memo line what it is, what your intentions for it are. Did I miss anything else, Doug? Yeah, write the check out to Christian Bible Church and we'll make sure it gets where it needs to go.
Good morning. Would you join me in standing and singing hymn number 149? His name is wonderful. Five hundred and fifty-six. It's what Steve had in part of his sermon last week, and we couldn't find the number. So, five hundred and fifty-six till the storm passes by. In the dark of the midnight, have I oft hid my face? While the storm howls above me And there's no hiding place Mid the crash of the thunder Precious Lord, hear my cry Keep me safe till the storm passes by Till the storm passes over Till the thunder sounds no more Till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. Many times Satan whispered, there is no need to try. For there's no end of sorrow, there's no hope by and by. But I know thou art with me, and tomorrow I'll rise where the storm never darkens the skies. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, Till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. When the long night has ended and the storms come no more, let me stand in his presence on that bright, peaceful shore. 
in that land where the tempest never comes. Lord, may I dwell with thee when the storm passes by. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. And would you turn back to hymn number 44, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Would you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you that we can come together and celebrate your word, celebrate your name, and celebrate what you've done for us. Lord, we just thank you for being able to get together and do that. Lord, we want to remember Courtney's family, Lord. We want to pray for them and we ask for strength and comfort for, for them. We ask for a, a, a special measure of grace upon them that they would feel your love and be able to rely on you through this very terrible time. Lord, we thank you for answered prayer, Lord. We thank you that Dave Clampett's home. We thank you that Florence is home. We pray for each of them and that they would improve. We pray for Dave's infection and uh, we pray that you would clear that from his body and that he would be uh, healed, Lord. Lord, we also want to remember Ron and Mary as they are in nursing homes. They can't be with us, Lord, and we just pray that, that you would encourage them. We pray that you'd strengthen them as they try to uh, be able to maneuver and, and uh, handle themselves again. We pray for recovery, Lord. Lord, as we search for a pastor, we pray for the individuals that have said yes to, to do this search, and we just pray for guidance and wisdom as they go about this. We pray for patience for each of us as we, as we wait. Lord, we pray for that man that you have for us, that you would be preparing him for this task and for this ministry. Lord, this morning we are so blessed to have Todd with us, and we thank you for his willingness to serve you and to serve this church. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon him this morning and that he would be uh, filled with it and as he delivers the words that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Our speaker this morning is Todd Daly. Todd is a uh, professor of ethics and theology at Urbana Theological Seminary. And... Uh, we're thankful to have him here this morning. Todd, come and share with us, would you? Well, uh, good, good morning to you all. Uh, I, I hope you won't hold it against me that uh, I'm a seminary professor. You, 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 uh, you never know these days. Um, uh, so uh, l let's pray. Father, will you take these words and make them yours for your glory? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there is uh, a pastor who goes by the name of Maverick who uh, shared a story of the most remarkable wedding he had ever attended. Uh, and the central figure in this drama was actually the mother of the bride, 
who at the announcement of her daughter's wedding became, in his words, mentally unhinged. Um, now, she was overcome with joy and managed to overcome everyone else with her joy before the dust had settled. So nobody knew it ahead of time, but the mother had been waiting with a production script of epic proportions, like a, a royal wedding fit for a princess bride. And since it was her money, it was hard to say no. Maverick says that no detail was left to chance or human error. Everything that could be engraved was engraved. Uh, there were teas and showers and dinners. Uh, Maverick also said that uh, the bride's mother would call and meet with him weekly and was in his office more than the janitor. Um, all of the clothes for the wedding were made to order. The tuxedos were tailored and purchased, not rented, bought. An 18-piece brass and wind ensemble was engaged for this uh, event. Nobody would ever forget this wedding. And so the final hour approached, the guests in formal attire packed the church, Enough candles were lit to bring daylight back to the evening. He says, the ensemble and the choir in the loft and the orchestra just gushed this beautiful music. State dinners at the White House didn't look this fancy. And of course, the mother of the bride mightily coasted down the aisle flawlessly with ease and elegance and grace. It was flawless. She'd done it. She was glowing, beaming. She smiled and sighed. And then the music softened as, as nine, nine chiffon-draped bridesmaids slowly marched down the aisle while the befrocked groomsmen, or the groom and his men, marched rather rigidly into place. So Maverick is standing here at the, you know, up on the stage, and he, he pointed out that the bride had been dressed for hours, if not days, and that there was no adrenaline left in her body. So left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the, the march of the maidens just went on and on and on, she walked among the tables that were laden with all kinds of gourmet snacks, you know, sampled a few mints, uh, a pink one, a green one, a yellow, mint. Uh, she picked through the silver bowls of mixed nuts, had a few pecans, sampled part of the cheese ball, some black olives, a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with the frilly toothpick stuck in it, a couple of shrimps wrapped in bacon, and a cracker piled with liver pate. Um, and then she washed it all down with a glass of pink champagne. Um, her father gave it to her to, to calm her nerves. And uh, as Maverick is standing up on the stage and he sees the, the father and the bride standing at the back of the church, he says, um, it wasn't so much the whiteness of the dress that you noticed, but the whiteness of her face. Uh, in his words, she was a live grenade with the pin pulled out. And, and so as you might imagine, uh, at just the right time, the bride threw up right as she walked by her mother. <laughs> and, and this wasn't like a polite 
kind of, you know, into a handkerchief, but uh, this, there's no nice word for it. He said she just puked and hosed the whole front chancel, including the groom, the ring bearer, and the pastor. And Maverick can confirm this because, um, well, the mother had thought of everything, and so there were three video cameras from different angles to get all of this on film. Um, folks with weak stomachs headed for the exit. Uh, the, the, the groom just sat down on the stage, didn't know what to do, and kind of stunned silence. The orchestra that can't see any of this happening just continues to play like everything is great. And the only two people smiling in the whole place were the mother of the groom and the father of the bride. Now, they, they did manage to get her cleaned up, and they did have uh, a wedding reception in the hall. Uh, in order to escape the, the smell and the chaos, and it took about eight to ten years before the mother of the bride could actually laugh about this event. And because she was a good spirit, uh, they hosted a ten-year anniversary party of the wedding, where they had large screens set up from three different angles to get, to, to get the action, um, frame by frame advance, if you wanted. Um, Okay, so these kinds of rather mundane concerns of avoiding a social catastrophe is exactly the kind of thing that's going on in John chapter 2. There's, there's some connection here, right? That this, uh, at the wedding in Cana, um, chaos and embarrassment uh, and shock is about to be unleashed because the wine has run out. Uh, and so this is, uh, I've, I've got some slides here. Oh, okay. Uh, my apologies, I realize this is the NIV version and you may have, I think the Pew Bibles are a slightly different version, but if you, if you want, it's page 887 or you can just read along with, with me. Um, so on the third day, Matthew says, or I'm sorry, John says, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus said, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
lots of different ways to, to go with this story, but I, I think it has to do primarily with um, filling, with, well, to put it as briefly as possible, uh, to bring abundance out of, out of absence. And uh, so since most sermons have three points, I have three points based on uh, this, this concept. And, and the first is this, uh, God brings abundance from absence by answering our, our cry for help. So, so John tells this story kind of through, uh, or the problem through Mary who is the first to recognize we have an issue because there is no more wine. Once again, this would be a major social embarrassment for the groom who was responsible to make sure that all of the guests were well fed and hydrated. No one would look back on this wedding 10 years later and laugh about running out of wine. And Mary is acutely aware of what's at stake, so she does what any good mother would do. She turns to her son and says, we're out of wine. The wine is out. Now, I don't think Mary, Mary is just making some type of observation here. I mean, this kind of statement seems to imply that, Jesus, you ought to do something about this. It's kind of like when your wife says, I'm freezing. This house is like a barn. Like somewhere in that statement is a maybe not so veiled request, like you need to turn up the thermostat, or it's time we ordered those new windows to fix this drafty old house, or maybe it's time we move south. Amen. I, I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I, uh, I actually don't mind the seasons. Uh, but, but in other words, uh, Jesus... I'm, I'm stating something, but please, you need to do something. And, well, admittedly, the, uh, Mary's request doesn't seem to uh, provide, or she doesn't seem to receive a very uh, encouraging response. You know, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It almost seems like a gentle rebuke. Um, the demons addressed Jesus with similar kinds of phrases on the eastern shore of Galilee. What have you to do with us, the demons said. And Jesus' next statement kind of clarifies the source of this gentle rebuke. Like, my time, my hour is not yet here. Mary just wants this wedding to end without embarrassment. And Jesus considers Mary's request in the context of his ministry and his goals and his aims, which would ultimately culminate in the cross. So Jesus' mission is far more expansive than fixing a problem at this wedding in the backwaters of Galilee. And Mary's request, quite frankly, just seems to be in conflict with Jesus' ultimate goal. And Jesus kind of lets her know. But I mean, we've read the story. Jesus ends up honoring her request anyway. And after the servants fill the waters to the brim, he transforms this water into wine. We're never actually told when or how it happens. 
The first miracle, like very discreet, and somewhere between the servants drawing out water and bringing it to the headmaster to taste, it occurs. John actually uses a passive verb to describe this miracle, like it's in the past tense in verse 9. He never comes right out and says, Jesus turned the water into wine, but simply states that the water had been turned into wine. But I think there's something really cool here and hopefully encouraging for us because while Mary's simple request appears to be in conflict with Jesus' ultimate goal, Jesus still honors her request without without compromising his own purposes and mission. I find that encouraging because I think this story tells us that God is attentive to every detail in our lives and is fully aware of our needs, major or mundane. And it also says that God's will and power and sovereignty is big enough or expansive enough to accommodate our requests. God doesn't need to allow his plans to be held in hostage to our requests, right? He's not a benevolent grandfather in the sky, but neither does he turn away from meeting real human need that may not actually fit entirely with his immediate purposes. I, I, think, that's, I think that's just deeply mysterious. I think at some point, if we try to make sense of how our free actions and God's free actions work together, at at some point, language will just fail us. But we do get a glimpse in this story of God's gracious and divine condescension. God is able to meet our immediate needs, even when these kinds of requests may be at the fringes of God's bigger purposes. All right, one down, two to go. Uh, The the second, um, and I will probably forget to, here we go. Uh, God is able to uh, bring uh, abundance from absence by engendering or giving birth to faith. It was hard to find a word that kind of went with answering, so engendering is, it's it's a professor word. My my apologies. so, but by the end of the narrative, we learn that the disciples were able to believe in him. I mean, that's the last line of this story. But I, I want to pause here a little bit and reflect on the response of uh, Mary, who is admittedly front and center. And, and no doubt, if, if we Protestants tend to downplay Mary's interaction with Jesus, um, On the other end of the spectrum are Roman Catholics, right, who typically see verse 4 as a foundation for their doctrine of Mariology, which sees Mary as an intercessor between us and Jesus. And I mean, we certainly uh, don't have to agree with that, and we don't need, thankfully, to formulate a doctrine of Mary. But I think it's worth noting that her faith in her son is pretty impressive. I mean, up until this point, Jesus hasn't performed any uh, miracles so far as we know. We have no suggestion that Jesus had performed a single one, even in private. Though you have to wonder as a teenager, I I hope this isn't an irreverent thought, but I wonder if Jesus as a teenager wasn't occasionally tempted 
to make his bed by just snapping his fingers. That's, that's an unanswerable theological question. I'm, but there's little reason here for Mary to expect that Jesus was going to perform a miracle here. She just knew that Jesus was capable of doing something about it. And she was persistent, and she was not phased by Jesus' apparent indifference to her request. Now, maybe on one level, this is something only a mother can ask of her adult child. Like, she received Jesus' mild rebuke, uh, which at first glance sounded kind of like a no, but she doesn't give up. I mean, typical mom fashion. Jesus kind of rebuffs her, and what does Mary do? She turns to the servants and says, you know, just do whatever he says. A bit presumptuous, but again, maybe only a mom can get by with that. But she's persistent in the face of Jesus' apparent unwillingness. And there are other examples in the New Testament where this happens, like the the Syro-Phoenician woman, right? She asked Jesus to heal her daughter, and she was rebuffed by Jesus, right? I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. But she persisted in asking, you know, as if, uh, please give me a crumb from your table, as if she were a dog standing next to her master. And she was rewarded for that. One scholar says, and I'm quoting, and I can't remember who said it, so it's just a scholar, uh, who said, such persistence always seems to win Jesus over to acting. I think that's based on faith, by the way, and I'm not talking about manipulation. God, God can't and won't be manipulated. And Mary's not manipulating here. She is simply placing her trust in the abilities of Jesus. And so when she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them, she kind of reveals a simple faith, a simple faith that acknowledges that, Jesus, you can fix this. I don't know how. I won't tell you how, but I know you can. She is perfectly content to leave the details to him, and she is rewarded for that. And I think the Gospels bear witness to the fact that Jesus is worthy of this whatever kind of faith. Do whatever. A do whatever kind of faith is not plagued either by general abstract requests nor is it trying to force God's hand. I I usually, uh, you know, when I pray and I need something, I tend to avoid something between these two and, and try one or the other, right? So sometimes I'll offer or we can offer vague prayers for blessings, acknowledging that they will only be answered, you know, according to your will. And that's perfectly fine and acceptable. And, and no doubt, like, you know, theologians contribute to this kind of mindset by offering up kind of abstract notions of how God's power works, especially when we, you know, reduce God to just commanding X, Y, and Z. And the other extreme is, you know, making demands of God to answer our prayers in the ways that we think they need to be answered, often forgetting God's Uh, God's word to the prophet or the prophet's words to us in Isaiah, right? That my ways are higher than your ways. 
year after year, I have to keep relearning that lesson. But this do-whatever kind of faith is not plagued by the general or the specific. It does not try to force God's hand. And that kind of faith only comes from God. This Jesus Christ is, after all, God in the flesh. And this Jesus of Nazareth was able to bring abundance out of absence, but in such a way that only a few saw the sign. The secret was still kept, if you will. And the disciples were able to see that behind the scenes and to put their faith in Jesus. By bringing abundance from absence, Jesus engendered or gave birth to a deeper faith in his disciples. And God glories in giving us signs to strengthen our faith, too. I, I remember many, many years ago when uh, I was, um, I was uh, wanting to go to Iowa State University. Uh, I, was, I had a two-year degree and uh, you know, used to fix computers in a former life. And um, I had applied to Iowa State since I grew up in Iowa, and I'd been accepted. And um, school was going to start in a month, and I, I didn't know a soul in that city or that place, and I still didn't have a place to stay. And I was in my early 20s and knew that there's no way I could live in a dorm. And so um, I had a few options, and um, slowly they all, they all fell through. And after my last option fell through, I remember I was sitting in my parents' home, and I just kind of threw my hands up in frustration and, and out loud. You know, I just quit my job in Chicago. I had, I had no money, no income, no place to stay not much of a future, and I just threw my hands up in the air audibly and said, okay, God, what now, right? My last door has been closed. Um, and you know, I had just hung up the phone with the last potential offer that had fallen through. So I had hardly finished complaining when the phone rang, and um, it seems that my, uh, my grandmother's hairdresser knew a pastor at the university who was aware of another pastor who had a son who was rooming with a couple people. Did you follow all of that? Anyway, um, and they needed another roommate. And within a day, I drove out and met these two fellows that were decent guys, and I had a place to stay, right? It was, it was clearly divinely ordained, right? I, now, I, I was praying kind of vaguely, but it's, this, is, this is an answered prayer, and it's, um, it's something that I, it's part of my history now, right? I, I, I remember that, or I try to remember that when I question whether or not God is still interested or good or is going to get me out of whatever um, kinds of problems or issues I'm facing. I, uh, one of my favorite people to read, and this admittedly makes me a nerd, is uh, Augustine, early, he's a church father, um, he, he said this, uh, let us knock that he may open to us and fill us with invisible wine, for we were water and he made us wine, made us wise, for he gave us the wisdom of his faith. This, you know, that form of preaching is kind of all over the map, but I, I, I love it. And he was reflecting on this particular story. Okay, last one. Um, finally, uh, 
God brings abundance from absence and by doing so astonishes the world and thereby bringing glory to his name. When God moves, it gets attention. The master of the ceremonies had no clue where this wine had come from, but he knew good wine when he tasted it. And he calls the groom over to declare that he, uh, look, you've saved the best till now. This, this isn't how it works. And I think that statement has several layers of significance. Um, most scholars would say that John is making a deeper theological point here, showing how the coming of the Messiah is ushering in a new order that replaces the old. And I think that becomes even clearer when uh, you think about six stone jars, which John tells us were used for ceremonial purification. That era will be coming to an end. And no Jew would have needed to hear or understand John's brief explanation as to why these are stone jars. Because anyone there would have known that stone jars have to be used for this ceremonial cleansing. Um, because pottery could become defiled. Stone vessels were always considered clean. They would have understood that all the guests would have had servants pour water over their hands as a symbolic cleansing before they would eat. I mean, later on, right, it was the Pharisees who would criticize Jesus' disciples for failing to observe these kinds of customs. And so when Jesus is telling the servants to fill these jars, he's alluding to the end of this old order, the old way of doing things and the customs, which would be replaced by something new, wine. I mean, maybe it's not an accident that bread and wine are an eternal part of our remembrance of Christ going forward. And then finally, when John uh, says that the servants filled the jars to the brim, it may be another uh, illustration or allusion to the completion or the fulfillment of Jewish ceremonial law. All right, that's enough of the scholarship stuff, um, just for what it's worth. It's hard sometimes to avoid that. Um, okay, I lied. There's one more. There, there may be something to the significance of the jars, six jars, Number seven is, is perfection. Six, obviously, I, you know, I'm not great at math, but six falls one short of seven. Um, and that's, um, there may be, may be something to that. John is likely telling us that the old order is both inadequate and it is now fulfilled in Christ. And the wine is, speaks of the new order, the, the coming of uh, the messianic age. Um, this is what Amos said, uh, the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild uh, the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make uh, gardens and eat uh, eat their fill, eat their fruit. I'm sorry. Um, 
There, there is, uh, just for what it's worth, um, there, there's this other uh, ancient writing that's not biblical, okay? The, the technical word is pseudepigrapha, which is, is quite a mouthful. But this, um, this is building on this Old Testament tradition. And I think also, uh, yes, uh, other passages in, uh, in the Old Testament. I can barely read that. Uh, the earth shall, uh, also shall yield its fruit 10,000-fold. And on each vine there shall be a thousand branches, and each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape will produce a core of wine. Um, and I know what your next question is going to be. I had to look that up. So uh, that's about 60 gallons of wine. Now, again, this is all, this is all metaphorical, right? But um, you get the sense of abundance. There is, there's nothing lacking here. Uh, and so, by producing 150 gallons of wine at the wedding, Jesus' sign speaks of this new era. But it's not merely the quantity, it's the quality. This is the good stuff. You have saved the best for last, which, from an economic perspective, is totally foolish. Everybody knows you serve the good stuff first, and then when people's tastes are uh, less discerning, or dare I say, if they've had too much, then you open the cheap stuff. Our, our culture today, our you know, modern, hyper-productive, consumer-driven economy is bent on maximizing efficiency and profit, right? And, and basically, this headmaster's statement uh, is, a, is a principle that the world lives by with ruthless efficiency. And I think, undoubtedly, you know, living in our, our, our economy can have a withering effect on our soul. Um, you know, do more with less. Um, we need to eliminate middle management. I, I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but... Um, well, when I go to the grocery store, I'm shocked at how much things cost now. But I've also noticed like, that the packaging has gotten a little bit smaller, but they're still charging the same price. Um, and that's really irritating. Uh, so uh, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, because I'm talking in particular about Oreo double stuff, right? And it's, it's, not, it's not like I need more of that. But you know, you open the package and something doesn't look quite right, but yet it's still pretty pricey. I remember too, like I, uh, I don't have my backpack with me, but all the zippers finally broke, and so I went online and I ordered a new one. And when I got it, I noticed that my laptop like barely fit in it this time. And I'm like, well, this is the same model. And so because I'm neurotic, I measured. And sure enough, it's the same backpack, but it's, it's a tiny bit smaller. Same price. Someone got promoted over that, anyway. Um, but this is the world's economy, supply and demand. We are cajoled and bombarded with manipulative advertising at every turn. And this kind of economy can leave us hollow because it always over-promises and under-delivers. The world's economy may indeed in some ways leave us rich in resources, but it also leaves others of us struggling to get by. 
right? And there's other kinds of emptiness in our world. In our technological age of abundance, we may find ourselves spiritually or emotionally empty. Maybe we're running low on faith. Or maybe we're running out of mercy or patience for those who need it. There are some of us who probably know the emptiness that comes from chronic illness. Others may be struggling with um, emptiness uh, relationally, whether it's loneliness or a failed marriage or tensions with a coworker or family member. And there may be others who know the emptiness of joblessness. And I think on some level, we all need to hear this story from time to time. Not, not because we need a miracle, although some of us, maybe we do, but because this wedding tells us the story and the reality of God's economy, which is one of ridiculous abundance. The kingdom that is already here, but not quite all the way yet. And this story exposes the world's economy as entirely counterfeit. And just for the record, I am not against capitalism. It is probably the best system we have. But the world's economy can make no sense of a miracle like this. It throws everything we know out of whack. And it reminds us, again, that God's economy is one of astonishing abundance. And it's an economy that gets the world's attention. I should have had that slide. I think that's it. Okay. Um, and maybe there's just one practical thing that might be said this morning for those of us who are battling some type of emptiness. And maybe the practical thing is just to keep doing what you're doing, even if it's a struggle, knowing that God, is, God sees you and hears you, and this God is perfectly capable of filling, of providing. Like the servants in the story, maybe we just need to be faithful in the mundane, everyday things that are under our control to keep filling those jars, trusting God to transform it into wine or something better when the time is right. Because we, uh, we serve a God who knows about emptiness. Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus of Nazareth, we find God emptying himself. Not through subtraction, but through addition. Not by setting aside divine attributes, but by taking on human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, in all of its ugliness, its depravity, and its emptiness, all taking into the core being of God. And the only reason that God is able to bring abundance out of emptiness is because God has emptied himself without ceasing to be divine. No one knows more about abandonment or emptiness than Jesus. And then there is one empty space that makes all the difference in the world, and that is the tomb. So maybe we just need to be reminded that God uses empty vessels for his own glory. And after all, the emptiest ones are the easiest to fill. If we're full of ourselves, 
we're not likely to have much room for the filling that really brings true life and joy. And in Jesus Christ, God makes use of empty vessels for his glory and brings abundance out of our emptiness. He revealed just enough of his glory to these disciples at Cana so that he might later be fully glorified by being lifted up on the cross for the world to see, to the astonishment of the world. And because of this, Jesus says, this is a rough paraphrase, right? Give me, give me the losers and the lame, the divorced and the depressed, the angry and the addict, the broken and the bitter, the cautious and the quitters, and I will fill them. I will fill you and change the world. That is God's economy of astonishing abundance. Let, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you see us and hear us and care about the little details of our lives. We thank you that you emptied yourself to come and dwell among us and that you are the great filler of empty spaces and empty hearts. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us grace, give us your faith to be faithful where we are, knowing, knowing that you will indeed one day redeem all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's close our time together by singing Be Still and Know, hymn number 630. <clears throat> put my trust in thee. 